Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine, and I'm looking forward to giving you a quick glimpse into what's new in Annals since our last podcast. Before I tell you about the new articles, I want to wish our U.S. listeners a belated Thanksgiving holiday. Now to what's new on Annals.org. The first article is a position paper from the American College of Physicians that calls for adequately funded policies to improve the health and well-being of adults incarcerated in the U.S. jail and prison system. ACP's recommendations include adequate funding for and timely access to necessary healthcare services that are evidence-based and meet community standards. They also recommend measures to ensure adequate nutrition, opportunity for physical activity, smoke-free policies, and smoking cessation interventions, and access to recommended preventive health services. ACP further calls for policies to adequately treat both chronic non-communicable diseases and infectious diseases. This should include infectious disease prevention and control programs developed with public health authorities. In addition, all persons entering correctional facilities should be screened for substance use disorders and behavioral health conditions and provided with treatment if necessary. ACP also supports policies that promote the treatment of patients with substance use disorders as an alternative to incarceration. The paper also details recommendations for population segments within correctional facilities, including women, LGBTQ persons, immigrants, aging patients, and those living with disabilities or life-limiting illnesses. Lastly, the ACP calls for reentry planning for individuals who are released from jail or prison so that they're able to continue to access health care and social services once they return to their communities. Drugs sold in North America are often tested abroad, including in low- and middle-income countries. When trials are intended to inform North American health care, recruitment from low- and middle-income countries has scientific and ethical implications. Drug effects can be vary because of geographic differences and patient characteristics. Recruitment in low- and middle-income countries also raises some ethical issues. Trials require extra clinic visits, procedures, and exposure to unproven treatments, including unknown risks. Yet the FDA does not require sponsors to report or publicly disclose which country participants are recruited from. Researchers from McGill University conducted a cross-sectional analysis of 66 newly approved cardiovascular, neurologic, and cancer drugs and 144 pivotal clinical trials of these 66 drugs. They found that among all analyzed trials, 56% in cancer, 79% in cardiovascular disease, and 56% in neurology recruited from low- and middle-income countries. The authors also report that country-level enrollment figures were not available for 55% of multi-country trials. According to the authors, although recruitment is reported by region or continent, such groupings can obscure important differences among host countries. They emphasize that sporadic availability of country enrollment can frustrate the valid interpretation of pivotal trial findings. It can also limit the ability to monitor and hold research sponsors accountable for fair participant selection. They urge journals, regulators, and clinicaltrials.gov to establish policies that require public reporting of country-level information on recruitment. Endemic mycoses, fungal pathogens that lead to a wide range of diseases in humans, are expected to become more common in the coming decade, partly due to climate change. The increasing spread of these pathogens increases the possibility that clinicians without familiarity with these mycoses may encounter them in daily practice. This is important because endemic mycoses may be erroneously diagnosed as bacterial infections leading to inappropriate use of antibiotics and other prescriptions that provide no relief to the patient. 
Stopping the spread of fungal pathogens is a public health priority being increasingly recognized by international public health efforts. In October 2022, the World Health Organization announced the creation of the World Health Organization Fungal Priority Pathogens List, a new effort to systematically prioritize fungal pathogens, considering their unmet research and development needs and perceived public health importance. In a new commentary, authors from University of California Davis and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention highlight the increasing spread of blastomycoses, coccidiomycoses, and histoplasmosis, the endemic mycoses that are most prevalent in North America. All three pathogens have been traced outside their original endemic regions due to both climate change and more thorough identification. The authors highlight the current lack of guidelines for testing and treatment of mycoses, unlike when clinicians encounter other infections like community-acquired pneumonia. Patients who have been infected with these pathogens may experience long periods of illness between initial infection and diagnosis, leading to increased healthcare costs and frequent antibiotic overprescription. The authors say that improvements in our epidemiologic understanding of disease and the ability to capture changes in disease incidents at the county level would enable directed educational efforts, public health campaigns, and quality improvement initiatives to reduce the time to diagnosis and receipt of appropriate antifungal therapy. The World Health Organization recommends either medical masks or N95 respirators, and the CDC recommends only N95 respirators for healthcare workers participating in routine care of patients with confirmed or suspected COVID-19. It is uncertain if medical masks offer similar protection against COVID-19 compared with N95 respirators. Researchers from McMaster University studied 1,009 healthcare workers who provided direct care to patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 in 29 inpatient or long-term care settings in Canada, Israel, Pakistan, and Egypt. Participants were randomly assigned to universal masking with either a medical mask or a fit-tested N95 respirator for 10 weeks. The primary outcome was COVID-19 confirmed with a reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction test. The authors found that confirmed COVID-19 occurred in 10.46% of the medical mask group versus 9.27% in the N95 respirator group which ruled out a doubling hazard of RT-PCR-confirmed COVID-19. However, the results varied by country, 6.1% versus 2.2% in Canada, 35.29% versus 23.53% in Israel, 3.26% versus 2.13% in Pakistan, and 13.62% versus 14.56% in Egypt. This may have been due to differences in vaccine use, the number of people with previous infection, and the type of variant circulating in the study countries which were enrolled during different times in the pandemic. The authors indicate that while medical masks were found not to be significantly less effective than N95 respirators and the efficacy estimate was within the pre-specified non-inferiority margin, this margin was wide and between country heterogeneity limits definitive conclusions about non-inferiority. An accompanying editorial highlights that, despite the inconclusive results, this trial provides the best evidence to date on comparative effectiveness of mass types in preventing COVID-19 infection in healthcare workers. The results indicate that medical masks may be similar to N95 respirators in Omicron-era settings with high COVID-19 seroprevalence, but would not have met a more stringent non-inferiority threshold. 
The editorialist, Dr. Roger Chu, notes that decisions about mass types in healthcare workers should be informed by the estimates provided in this trial and continue to account for healthcare worker preferences about potential trade-offs and 95 respirator availability and resource constraints. The standard of care for patients hospitalized with COVID-19 has evolved rapidly during the pandemic and includes changes in oxygenation practices, airway management, use of prone positioning, anticoagulation practices, and use of antivirals, corticosteroids, and other immunomodulators. These interventions have affected the morbidity and mortality of patients with COVID-19, but it is difficult to quantify their cumulative effect as the pandemic progresses. Researchers from the National Institutes of Health and the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial analyzed clinical outcome data from sequential cohorts of hospitalized patients in the first four stages of the trial, commonly referred to as the ACTT. A series of phase three double-blind randomized controlled trials of COVID-19 treatments to evaluate whether recovery and mortality improved as standard of care evolved. Instead of comparing treatment groups within each stage of the trial, the authors compared the three remdesivir-only groups from the first three stages of the ACTT. Since ACTT-4 did not include a remdesivir monotherapy arm, recipients of remdesivir plus dexamethasone plus standard of care were compared between stage 3 and stage 4 of the trial. The authors found that between the first and second stage of the trial, standard of care changes included a dramatic decrease in hydroxychloroquine use and a gradual decrease in empirical antibiotic use. They also found that the odds of baseline intubation in the second stage of the trial were 25% lower than for the first stage. However, they did not find evidence that these changes affected 28-day recovery or mortality. The authors found that recovery and mortality improved between stage 2 and 3. The main observed change in standard of care that may explain these improvements was a large increase in the use of dexamethasone. Antibiotics also declined gradually between these stages, but antibiotic use also declined steadily across the other stages without outcome improvement. The authors found no improvements between stage 3 and stage 4 groups. Next is a brief research report that found that despite 21% fewer COVID-19 deaths occurring during the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic, 7% more years of life were lost due to a shift in COVID-19 mortality to relatively younger people. Researchers from Harvard Medical School conducted an analysis of premature mortality caused by the leading causes of death in the U.S. during the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. The authors quantified the shift in mortality age using years of life loss, which offers an indicator of premature mortality based on the estimated number of years a person would have lived if they had not died prematurely. They found that despite 21% fewer COVID-19 deaths during March to December 2021 than during March to December 2020, years of life lost due to COVID-19 increased by 7% as the age distribution of the decedents shifted downward. Relatively younger people were dying. The authors report that years of life loss per COVID-19 death increased by 35.7%, but did not change by more than 2.2% for any other leading cause of death. According to the authors, understanding the shift in COVID-19 mortality dynamics could inform prevention and treatment approaches, public policy development, and community measures to minimize future effects of COVID-19. 
And staying on the topic of COVID-19, new recommendations from the American College of Physicians summarize the best available evidence about the use of pharmacologic and biologic treatments of COVID-19 in the outpatient setting. Treatments evaluated include antibiotics, antiparasitic agents, antivirals, convalescent plasma, corticosteroids, fluvoxamine, and monoclonal antibodies. In the recommendations, ACP suggests that clinicians consider using the following antiviral treatments in patients with confirmed mild to moderate COVID-19 who are not at high risk for progressing to severe disease. Malnupiravir within five to seven days of the onset of symptoms, nermotrelavir ritonavir combination therapy, trade name Paxlovid, within five days of onset of symptoms, remdesivir within seven days of the onset of symptoms. ACP suggests against the use of certain monoclonal antibodies unless they are considered effective against the SARS-CoV-2 variant or subvariant locally in circulation. Finally, ACP suggests against the use of other reviewed treatments including azithromycin, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, convalescent plasma, fluvoxamine, ivermectin, nidazoxanide, lopinavir, ritinavir, combination therapy, or sotrovibab. The recommendations note that the informed decision to initiate treatment for COVID-19 in the outpatient setting should be personalized and based on clinical judgment and the informed decision-making approach with the patient on potential treatment benefits, harms, patient-level factors, and patient preferences. These recommendations are based on a systematic review conducted by the ACP Center for Evidence Reviews at Cochrane, Austria. If you go to annals.org, you'll find a brief video summarizing the evidence review in addition to the recommendations and the full systematic review. Moving to some articles not about COVID. The Medicaid program was created in 1965 as supplemental insurance coverage for the temporarily indigent. The increasing number of beneficiaries as well as changes made to the program place into question whether the program still exclusively serves as a temporary safety net. If Medicaid now serves as a long-run insurer, it may require a different infrastructure than if it serves as a temporary safety net. Researchers from the Yale School of Public Health studied 3.97 million Medicaid beneficiaries in Michigan enrolled between 2011 and 2020 to assess patterns of short- and long-term enrollment. The authors found that Medicaid was the primary long-run source of insurance coverage for most beneficiaries. They report that among a cohort of 1.23 million beneficiaries enrolled in 2011, 53% were also enrolled in Medicaid in June 2020, spending on average two-thirds of that period on Medicaid. The authors report, however, that beneficiaries experienced significant lapses in coverage with only 25% continuously enrolled throughout that period. Enrollment was less stable when assessed from the perspective of newly enrolled beneficiaries, of whom only 37% remained enrolled at the end of the study period. According to the authors, states are likely to reap the benefits of policies that improve the long-term health of beneficiaries and stabilize coverage for those new to the Medicaid program. An accompanying editorial highlights how disruptions in Medicaid coverage can disrupt the continuity of patient-physician relationships reduce medical care use, cause patients to stop medications, and worsen medical problems that are avoidable with proper care. The editorialist calls for states to stabilize their Medicaid coverage, but cautions that policymakers may need to more fundamentally reconsider elements of Medicaid eligibility so that low-income Americans have stable coverage comparable to that available to the elderly on Medicare 
or to middle-income working families with employer-sponsored insurance. The next study suggests that dapagliflozin, a sodium glucose transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitor, reduced the risk for hospitalization for any cause in patients with chronic kidney disease with and without type 2 diabetes. Patients with chronic kidney disease are often hospitalized, contributing to lower quality of life and higher health care costs. Prior studies have shown that SGLT2 inhibitors can reduce cardiovascular events and slow progression of kidney damage in patients with or without diabetes. The effect of these drugs on hospitalizations in patients with chronic kidney disease is less clear. Researchers from the Netherlands conducted a post-hoc analysis of the DAPA-CKD trial, which was a randomized double-blind trial of dapagliflozin versus placebo to determine the effects of dapagliflozin on first hospitalizations and all hospitalizations among patients with chronic kidney disease. The study included 4,304 adults with chronic kidney disease with and without type 2 diabetes from 386 outpatient facilities in 21 countries. After an average follow-up of about two years, the researchers found that tapagliflozin reduced the risk for hospitalization and increased the number of days alive and out of the hospital for patients with chronic kidney disease, whether they had diabetes or not. According to the authors, these findings highlight the additional benefits of tapagliflozin beyond those seen for cardiovascular and kidney events. Diabetes has become a major public health challenge, and patients with diabetes often have multiple comorbid conditions such as obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and cardiovascular disease. An insufficient number of diabetes specialists can be a substantial barrier to care. A computerized decision support system that helps clinicians implement protocol-based treatment could improve both adherence to clinical guidelines and clinical outcomes. Researchers from China and Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine randomly assigned 38 community health centers to either team-based care with computerized decision support or team-based care alone. A total of 11,132 individuals aged older than 50 years with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes and comorbidities were enrolled to compare the effectiveness of computerized decision support for controlling glycemia, lipids, and blood pressure. The computerized decision support system was fully integrated with team-based care to help primary care physicians and health coaches make decisions about care based on clinical guidelines. During the 18-month intervention, the authors found that patients in the computerized decision supports group had significantly but modestly lower hemoglobin A1C levels, LDL cholesterol levels, and systolic blood pressure than those at centers without a computerized decision support system. This system could help to solve real-world issues in diabetes management by helping clinicians appropriately care for patients. According to the authors, these findings support widespread adoption of this implementation strategy in community primary care settings, particularly in low-resource settings, to reduce cardiovascular disease risk among patients with diabetes. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Please go to annals.org and take some time to peruse some of the new articles I've mentioned. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you tune in again in two weeks for the last podcast of 2022.